Okay, well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this session, co-sponsored by the Wordsworth Trust and the LSE Literary Festival, Politics and Poetry, How Well Do They Mix? My name is Richard Bronk. I'm a visiting fellow at the LSE's European Institute and chair of this session. And before I introduce our eminent panel of speakers, and before we launch into a contemporary perspective on this topic, we thought it might be helpful if I set the scene with a few preliminary ideas about how views on the role of politics and poetry have changed over the centuries. And since in this session we want the poetry to speak for itself, I will also set the ball rolling with a couple of examples of fairly unsubtle but well-liked poems that do mix poetry and politics. So many of us nowadays associate, I think, poetry mostly with the personal and emotional rather than with reasoned political argument. And if poetry does address political themes, we tend to prefer the oblique approach, the resonant image, rather than a direct call to arms or a homily. We're particularly doubtful, I think, about poets writing to please political patrons or using their poetic skills as thinly disguised political rhetoric. But this has clearly not always been so. For example, to go back a mere 2,600 years... The great 6th century BC Athenian statesman and reformer Solon persuaded his fellow citizens, with the help of his own lyric poetry, of his uncomfortable diagnosis that Athens was being ruined by selfish greed and enormous debts. So no change there. (laughs) And two of the finest poets in ancient Rome, Horace and Virgil, wrote under the indirect patronage of the first Roman emperor, poetry that refers to great political debates and figures of their day, sometimes in ways that, frankly, make us cringe rather now, but often with extraordinary subtlety and emotional intelligence. And we'll come back to Horace in a moment. Near our own time, the romantic poets in the Hunt Circle, or Cockney School, as it's sometimes called, in the early 19th century, they were adamant that politics has a place in poetry and that poetry can be an ideological, indeed a moral, weapon. Shelley famously referred to poets as unacknowledged legislators of the world. And his poem, The Mask of Anarchy, written after the Peterloo Massacre, was for generations an inspiration to passive resistance movements, including, interestingly, that of Gandhi in India, with lines that still resonate as a direct call to non-violent resistance in the face of tyranny and state violence. So just a short passage from that. And if then the tyrants dare, let them ride among you there, slash and stab and maim and hew, what they like, that let them do, with folded arms and steady eyes and little fear and less surprise. Look upon them as they slay till their rage has died away. Then they will return with shame to the place from which they came and the blood thus shed will speak in hot blushes on their cheek. Now, one obvious problem with political poetry is that particular references are often highly contextual of passing interest and date very quickly. But perhaps not as often as you might think. When you look at poetry from bygone eras, a surprising number of political debates and themes seem to keep recurring and to resonate down the ages. And even the objects of topical satire seem to change remarkably little. For example, in 1817, Byron wrote in Beppo these lines that I think still amuse two centuries later, however politically incorrect they may be. Starting with the line, England with all thy faults, I love thee still, he continues, I like the freedom of the press and quill, I like the habeas corpus when we've got it, 
I like a parliamentary debate, particularly when it is not too late. And a few lines later, I like the weather when it is not rainy, that is, I like two months of every year. And so God save the regent, church and king, which means I like all and everything. Our standing army and disbanded seamen, pause rate, reform, my own, the nation's debt, our little riots just to show we are free men, our trifling bankruptcies in the Gazette, our cloudy climate and our chilly women, all these I can forgive and those forget and greatly venerate our recent glories and wish they were not owing to the Tories. <laughs> so we, what can we say about the success or otherwise of attempts to mix poetry and politics? How much of our notions of the role of the poet changed over the centuries? Are the most effective passages those that rely on the resonant image or the oblique reference or those that deal with a personal struggle with the important moral issues of the day? And finally, can direct political homilies and panegyrics ever appeal to modern sensibilities? Well, to address some of these questions, we have a fine panel of speakers. Carola Luther, who will speak first, is an acclaimed contemporary poet who lives in Yorkshire and was last year's resident in poet poet-in-residence at the Wordsworth Trust. Caroline Duffy said of Carola's first collection, Walking the Animals, that it marks the arrival of a wonderful new poet and that her poems are startlingly original, sensual and true, with imagery as tangible as the world it makes new for us. And Carola will look at our topic from the perspective of modern poetry. Michael McGregor is Robert Wolf, director of the Wordsworth Trust, an organisation that curates Dove Cottage in Cumbria and a world-renowned collection of manuscripts and art from the Romantic period. The Wordsworth Trust also supports modern poetry through its internship and poet-in-residence programmes. And Michael will address the changing way in which Wordsworth and Coleridge treated the French Revolution in their poetry. And Llewellyn Morgan is Fellow of Classical Literature at Brasenose College, Oxford, and author of Musa Pedestris. Llewellyn is well known for bringing Latin poetry alive with modern readings, and he will speak to us today about how Catullus, Statius, and Horace approach political issues in their poems. So each speaker will speak for about 15 minutes, and then after a brief panel discussion, we will open up to questions from you, the floor. So let's start, please, in reverse chronological order, Carola and a personal contemporary perspective. Good afternoon, and um, thank you for coming. It's wonderful to be here at the LSE and in such august and stimulating company. <clears throat> Richard's elegant overview of the subject threw up so many pertinent questions and I'll only have time to respond to a couple here. As you'll be glad to hear, I'll be reading other people's poems um, as well um, and, and one of mine. So to begin with, yes, I do think poetry and politics mix and can mix powerfully. Other people's poems that I'm reading today, and, and I think that we're all reading, uh, will illustrate that well. But I'm using the term political poetry broadly in my talk to mean poems that in some way turn outwards towards the public sphere, to the happenings and issues of the day, to the civic space, to questions of power, survival and justice. 
how this is best done might change over time and in different contexts, and I would suggest does. So while much contemporary poetry written in the UK and in the US may be associated with personal perspectives or may treat political questions more obliquely than in the past, I would suggest that this in itself doesn't necessarily make it less political, either in intention or function. What I think may have changed, though, is the more significant place that literary poetry seemed to have occupied in our culture in the past. If this is true, there are many reasons for it, I'm sure, but an obvious one is that it used to, poetry used to be one of very few methods of transmission, and we lived in a far less visual and communication-driven culture. Now, apart from books, there's the media, television, games, film, radio, YouTube, and a wealth of recorded song, and above all, all the avenues of the internet, including Facebook and Twitter. Which of these might Byron have used if he lived now? Maybe none. Maybe he would just have written poetry. It strikes me that one reason why some of us might prefer the oblique approach in literary poetry is that it, or in some literary poetry, let me say that, is that it leaves greater room for the independent imagination of the reader. Quiet participation, if you like. Also, our experience today is so much more, so much faster and more fragmented, more simultaneous than that of our forebears. We live in a world that is both globalised and atomised, and a culture that is less communal than in the past, Much of that feels pretty exciting at times, or random. And our identities are fluid and our technology both subtle and very stupid at the same time. And of course, whether through television or exile, burgeoning knowledge or migration, we travel and travel. So I wonder if we have all learned to read and decode this layered multiplicity with a sophistication our forebears prior to the imagists, of course, might have found more difficult. I guess I am suggesting that direct, sustained and reasoned argument, wonderful as it can be, perhaps only reflects one aspect of experience of being in the world, and it unfolds slowly. It seems to me that the resonant <coughs> image, the unexpected metaphor, the breaking of language, juxtaposition, Position, collage, fantasy, illusion, the suggestive echo of a rhythm all plug in to the reader and listener on different levels and often very quickly. No better, no worse, just differently and at best just as effectively. I'm not sure I've quite got to the end of this thought, but I did think, for example, ambivalence needn't be described but can be felt if you juxtapose things, for for example. Writing the personal and local, as we know from feminism and the great global liberation movements of the past, of the last century, has been immensely politically and socially liberating to many and produced some great poetry. And poets writing political poems from the place of lived experience (coughs) give to their work immense resonance and authority And this has been the case throughout history. I'm going to evade Richard's question about the role of the poet and speak only about my own writing. I'm afraid I don't feel (coughs) uh, expert enough to really discuss that well. 
But my own writing, the most important thing I've come to understand is not the content of what I write, but the integrity of process. What I mean is this, whatever a poem's beginnings, as I work and craft it, it begins to separate from me, the writer. It takes on its own life, its own direction, its own requirements, and these are what I must be faithful to. This is the one river to follow, and I can follow it if I row with concentration and it's a good day. If I do so, I find I might have written an okay poem, which hopefully will turn outward as well as inward, and may even be a political. But if I let other things lure me away, like strategies to make myself controversial or uncontroversial, <coughs> an over-seductive rhythm or rhyme, an ideological position that I won't let go of, laziness, fear, or if I am just not skilled or determined enough for the poem, I know it will never be quite right or just have dead bits in it. Um, I'm going to read one poem of mine um, which might illustrate this a little bit. Um, This poem is certainly flawed, uh, but bits of it work, and I think that's because I managed at time to serve the poem rather than myself as writer. And if I'd set out to write a poem with political content, I'm sure I wouldn't have been able to do it in the way that I have. Um, It's got political content, even if it's not political. I don't know if it is or it isn't. You can make that decision. Hmm. It it began, actually, with a phrase, cul-de-sac, and another phrase, strangers came into our midst. Um... It's all made up, but it bears relationship to that particular time, and I'll tell you how afterwards. It's called Roots, R-O-U-T-E-S. Strangers came into our midst, beautiful, disfigured, poor as chickens. Over the mountains, one by one, running on the day our computers went up in smoke, Rounded up in cul-de-sacs, they were taken to enclosures and the word put out that links were obvious. The clacking of the train from the capital came and went. A plane took off for America. I could see the fence from my tree. Guards every few yards, clerks behind slanting desks, slow queues moving. Papers were piled. Passports, address books... Letters of recommendation, scanned, recorded by hand, burned. Sky shriveled. Smoke rose and hung. The sound of the train from the capital came and went and a plane flew in from America. Trucks were loaded. Khaki and black packed with strangers, they dispersed down roads over the plains to the withering east, the west, the northern erosion. Red dust rose and hung. Trucks diminished to the size of beetles. In the silence I still heard songs leaping and tumbling in unknown registers. The train from the capital came and went. A plane took off for America. Um, As I wrote that... um, I, I, I guess I was aware of some of the things which were 
feeding into it, but not all of them until I completed the poem and started thinking, what, what am I writing here? Um, but one of the uh, influences, I guess, uh, was that at some time before I'd been doing uh, a lot of, uh, I'd been doing a sort of concentrated piece of work with with, with the Refugee Council, and um, I was also brought up in South Africa during the apartheid years, um, and very aware of uh, the way the government, well, not the way, but just aware of it that the government were dispersing people, uprooting them from their homes, um, uh, dispossessing them of land and house and everything, and just dumping um, people into, black South African people, into desert areas without uh, (coughs) uh, water or... um, uh, I can't think of the word... Um, Services. S- services, amenities, thank you. Let, uh, not even, uh, no houses, no roads, no nothing um, a, a lot of the time. Uh, so it, it was a, 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 a very brutal thing. So, so those two things are, are something that actually somehow feed in that. At the same time, there was also 9-11 had happened some, uh, some years before, and obviously... Um, uh, extraordinary rendition. So some of those things are all woven in there in in, in in a way that I wasn't sort of thinking about at the time I was writing. Um, so it wasn't quite as deliberate. It became more deliberate as as, thing, as the poem went on. I'm going to read some other poems, um, other people's poems, which I think hopefully will illustrate some of the points that I've been making. And these are wonderful. This first one is called Shambles by Hilary Menos from Shambles and Other Poem. Shambles is another word for slaughterhouse. Um, it's an old, old word for slaughterhouse. This is the cow that peered down the black hole of the captive bolt, shrugged its clod against the head gate, and said, like Gary Gilmore facing a five-man firing squad in Utah State, let's do it. This is the sheep that held out a hoof as the tongs earmuffed her temples and said, like John Amory greeting the hangman in Wandsworth Gallows, Oh, Mr. Pierpoint, I've always wanted to meet you, but not, of course, under these circumstances. This is the goat that, incompletely stunned, offered his throat to the knife and said, like Walter Raleigh, mentally thumbing the axe, so the heart be right. It is no matter which way the head lieth. This is the chicken that, shackled by one foot to the rack, reached the electric bath for a partial KO and said, like Tony Mancini, receiving the hood at Pentonville Prison, Cheerio. And this is the pig that, trotting through the race to the gas cubicle, put down his regulation issue Bible and said like Sean Patrick Flanagan readying his arm in a small white room in Nevada, I love you. <clears throat> Hilary Menace's poem is a, 
um, case in point where the argument is not in direct, uh, direct and reasoned argument. But the surprising juxtapositions and the cartoon-like animation of this deadly serious and fact, of factual situations, um, the disturbing echo of the nursery rhyme and the shadow of Animal Farm, all of that uh, feels like it surprises, well, certainly surprised me, made me think, and it did something by juxtaposing the human and the animal about the hierarchies between human and animal, um, about and, and, and commenting on capital punishment and the way we slaughter animals as well. I think it does something very interesting. Um, the next poem I'm going to read is a very different poem by Jeff Hattersley, um, which is from Harmonica, uh, 2003, Wrecking Ball Press. Jeff Hattersley is a Yorkshire poet, um, and he's said this to me in a, in a, in a email. The miners' strike was taking place when I was first writing poetry, and it wasn't so much a decision to be political. It's just that a poet has to express what he experiences, and when he's seeing his town full of riot police and people with black eyes and limbs in plaster casts after the coppers have finished with them, I mean, a poet can't write in a political and moral vacuum. This is not about the miners' strike. It's called The Depth, um, and is dis- uh, uh, in the in the wor- in the words of, of a man working on a plastic mold uh, machine, management, two of them and a couple of young lackeys are in my way for half an hour, discussing the depth of the mold coming out of the LB three fifty every forty seven point nine seconds. They won't wear it. I know they won't. But anything else, and it would fall off. I stop listening try to carry on as if they're not present, as if I'm not, as if I was under a parachute gliding in a blue sky. Then they are gone. Our quality control inspector strides over. And what pearls of wisdom did that lot have for you? They were talking, I tell him, about the depth of the mould. The depth, he says. The depth. He turns, walk back, walks back to his office, shaking his head. They haven't got a clue. They haven't got a buggering clue. It's the sort of job where you lose something. Something you spend the weekends looking for with tired eyes. And my final... Uh, poem that I'm going to read is from Plaguelands and Other Poems by Fawzi Karim Um, and Fawzi Karim is a um, a Iraqi poet who's lived in London since 1978 and uh, this uh, has been adapted by Anthony Howell after translations by Abbas Khadim it's part five of Plaguelands and Other Poems So let us now praise Exodus, Exodus en masse. 
Let us now praise Exodus before dawn while checking inside the receiver and under the car. Let us now praise Exodus as those who are exiled already praise those of us who are exiled after them. Unto them let's advertise our attractions and publicize our qualities to disbelieving lands. Our travel songs are shanty towns and the sun goes wailing through their slats. Who dare join their voices to our own? Let us now praise Exodus from its first cocoon to its children tumbling down the vale. And let us praise our morning songs that race us to the sea. Hallelujah, Exodus. No one's cheered as loud before. And wandering through us the slain are on tour. They pillow their heads on our eulogies. And as the light goes out of their eyes, we praise that dying light. Here are roads less stony. Here we stand at the summit of Mount Memory. Our wishes are wolves in the desert, scrabbling, scrabbling, never to strike the sacred springs of blood. And the sand soaks up our wishes. Let us praise the dullness that drains all colour out of things. And from the lands of the living, sing of the lands of the plague. I guess that <coughs> poem is interesting because it seems to me a very political poem and is also written by somebody who fiercely uh, defends the right to be independent from any ideology. Um, okay, thank you very much. Good afternoon, everybody, and uh, I'd like to echo Carolus. Thanks to you all for, for coming this afternoon, especially as uh, as Richard pointed out to us before we came in, we're competing against Pat Barker this afternoon. So. Um, okay, well, I'm going to talk about Wordsworth, uh, Coleridge, and the French Revolution, and for both the first generation of Romantic poets, that's Wordsworth, uh, Coleridge, and Southey, and also the second generation, Byron, Shelley, and Keats. The French Revolution was, to quote Shelley, the master theme of the epoch in which we live. In doing so, in exploring Courage's and Wordsworth's response to the French Revolution, I want to pull out two particular aspects of their political poetry at this time. Uh, that of uh, proximity versus distance, and also the public versus the private. First, and, and very briefly, a little bit of context, uh, the 1790s were a period of uh, tremendous political upheaval uh, on both sides of the channel. From the outset, the revolution in France was bound up with the cause of political reform in England. And initially, uh, on this side of the channel, there was a, a broad welcome from the for the revolution from all sides of the political spectrum. There was a, a genuine sense of optimism, of a new dawn for mankind, and some uh, even saw it as the fulfilment uh, of biblical prophecy. <coughs> Wordsworth, in 1789, was a 19-year-old 
undergraduate at St John's College in Cambridge. His first poetic response uh, to the French Revolution is a poem called Descriptive Sketches, which was published in 1793. And it was partly written uh, while Wordsworth was in France. And here's the first uh, important point concerning proximity and distance. The fact that Wordsworth, of all the Romantic poets, was the only one to experience the French Revolution at first hand. And he did this on, on two separate occasions. First of all in 1790, and then again in 1791 and 1792. In 1790, Wordsworth travelled down through France with his friend Robert Jones during the university vacation. Uh, he arrived in France uh, in a very timely fashion on the first anniversary of the fall of the Bastille. And in his great autobiographical poem, The Prelude, Wordsworth recalls the heady exultation of those, of those early days. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. O times in which the meagre, stale, forbidding ways of custom, law and statute took at once the attraction of a country in romance. When reason seemed the most to assert her rights, when most intent on making of herself a prime enchanter to assist the work which was then going forwards in her name. Not favoured spots alone, but the whole earth, the beauty war of promise, that which sets to take an image which was felt, no doubt, among the bowers of paradise itself, the budding rose above the rose full-blown. Now, Wordsworth returned to France in November 1791 and stayed for about a year, um, first in Orléans, then in Blois, and finally in Paris. Uh, while he was in France, he fell in love with a French woman, Annette Vallon, and she became pregnant with his child. He became immersed in revolutionary politics and radicalised by his experience. However, he also saw the mood of the revolution darken, and again, the prelude captures this quite brilliantly. And this is Wordsworth writing about his experience in Paris towards the end of 1792. The fear gone by pressed on me almost like a fear to come. I thought of those September massacres, divided from me by a little month, and felt and touched them, a substantial dread. The rest was conjured up from tragic fictions and mournful calendars of true history, remembrances and dim admonishments. The horse is taught his manage, and the wind of heaven wheels round and treads in his own steps. Year follows year, the tide returns again, day follows day, all things have second birth. The earthquake is not satisfied at once. And in such way I wrought upon myself until I seemed to hear a voice that cried to the whole city, sleep no more. But at the best it seemed a place of fear, unfit for the repose of night, defenceless as a wood where tigers roam. <coughs> so here's Wordsworth experiencing the revolution at first hand and writing very directly uh, and I think very brilliantly about it. But uh, that is by no means the full story. Uh, the lines that I've quoted to you were not actually written 
until 1804, nearly a decade, uh, sorry, more than a decade after the events that they describe. And these lines were never published during Wordsworth's lifetime. The prelude finally saw the light of day in 1850, uh, a few months after the poet's death. So in the prelude, we have poetry born of geographical proximity. Wordsworth was an eyewitness to great political events in France, um, but poems written at a considerable temporal distance. It's also poetry, in a sense, as private utterance, at least during the poet's lifetime, uh, when the poem was actually known as uh, the poem to Coleridge. Turning now to Coleridge, I'd like to just explore some of his responses poetically to the French Revolution. Um, in 1789, Coleridge was actually a 16-year-old schoolboy uh, at Christ's Hospital. <coughs> and you may have been uh, geographically removed from events in France, but his poetic response was immediate. In fact, he wrote his first substantial poem on the fall of the Bastille. As a piece of juvenilia, this was necessarily a private response. In fact, uh, like words was prelude, it wasn't actually made public until after Coleridge's death in 1834. But quite a lot of uh, Coleridge's poetry at this time does find its way into the public domain. Uh, in 1794, he wrote to a young lady with a poem about the French Revolution, and this was published in 1796. And also in 1796, Coleridge publishes poems on various subjects, which contains a poem called Religious Musings, uh, articulating his conviction that the French Revolution was the fulfilment of biblical prophecy and that a period of violence was a necessary precursor to an earthly millennium. But the poem I'd like to focus on briefly is uh, France, an ode. Um, in this poem, uh, as with words within the prelude, uh, Coleridge initially welcomes the re revolution as the, the dawn of a new age. When France in wrath her giant limbs upreared, and with that oath which smote air, earth and sea, stamped her strong foot and said she would be free, bear witness for me how I hoped and feared. <coughs> and when to whelm the disenchanted nation like fiends embattled by a wizard's wand, the monarchs marched in evil day, and Britain joined the dire array. Yet still my voice, unaltered, sang defeat to all that braved the tyrant quelling lance, and shame too long delayed, and vain retreat. For ne'er, O liberty, with partial aim, I dim thy light, or damp thy holy flame, but bless the pains of de delivered France, and hung my head, and wept at Britain's name. But also, like Wordsworth, Coleridge later in the poem reflects on the, the shifting course of the revolution. And in this case, uh, he's reflecting on the invasion of Switzerland by the French imperial armies in January 1798. <coughs> forgive me, freedom. Oh, forgive those dreams. I hear thy voice. I hear thy loud lament. From bleak Helvetia's icy caverns sent, I hear thy groans upon her blood-stained streams. O France, that mockest heaven, adulterous, blind, and patriot only in pernicious toils, are these thy boasts, champion of humankind, to mix with kings in the low lust of sway, yell in the hunt, and share the murderous prey, to insult the shrine of liberty with spoils, 
from free men torn to tempt and to betray. France, an ode, was written in the month following the invasion and was published in uh, the Morning Post, a newspaper in April of that year. So in contrast to the prelude, uh, Coridge is producing political poetry of, of immediate temporal proximity to political events, uh, but it is written without the benefits of any first-hand experience. Revealingly, uh, France, an ode, was initially published under the title A Recantation, and by 1798, which was uh, the annus mirabilis of the creative collaboration, uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge had turned against the revolution for the same reason. In its violence, uh, repression and subsequent imperial ambition, it had in their eyes, in the eyes of many radicals, uh, betrayed the cause of liberty. Now how far Wordsworth moved from this initial bliss was it in that dawn uh, enthusiasm can be demonstrated by a sonnet written in 1803 when, after a brief interlude of peace, the threat of event French invasion has again uh, manifested itself. And this sonnet is called uh, To the Men of Kent. Vanguard of liberty, ye men of Kent, ye children of a soil that doth advance her haughty brow against the coast of France, now is the time to prove your hardiment. To France be words of invitation sent. They from their fields can see the countenance of your fierce war. May ken the glittering lance and hear you shouting forth your brave intent. Left single in bold parley, ye of yore did from the Norman win a gallant wreath. Confirm the charters that were yours before. No parleying now. In Britain is one breath. We are all with you now, from shore to shore. Ye men of Kent, tis victory or death. So Wordsworth's nationalistic martial rhetoric uh, is a response to the imperial ambition of Napoleon and captures the prevailing mood at that time of a country which by this time had been at war with, at war with France uh, for a decade. What's interesting to note about that poem is that it was written uh, a year before uh, the above lines that I quoted uh, from the prelude. And in truth, Wordsworth needed to put some distance between himself and events in France because they precipitated, precipitated a profound uh, moral and intellectual crisis for the poet. It was only later when he settled at Dove Cottage and centred himself and focused inward on the growth of his own mind that Wordsworth was able to evaluate and articulate in verse uh, his complex feelings uh, about the French Revolution. During the 1790s, Coleridge was a, a much more prominent and public figure than Wordsworth as a poet uh, and political radical. By 1798, however, his disillusionment with the French Revolution had prompted uh, the very public recantation of France and Ode, and also another poem written in 1798 called Fears in Solitude. Now, Fears in Solitude is still critical of the government of the time, but it prefigures the patriotic fervour of Wordsworth's Vanguards of Liberty sonnet as well. O native Britain, O my mother isle, how shouldst thou prove aught else but dear and holy to me who from thy lakes and mountain hills, thy clouds, thy quiet dales, thy rocks and seas, 
have drunk in all my intellectual life, all sweet sensations, all ennobling thoughts, all adoration of the God in nature, all lovely and all honourable things, whatever makes this mortal spirit feel the joy and greatness of its future being. In surveying the, politi- the poetical output of uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge during the 1790s and their responses to the French Revolution, we're conscious of the judgment of history on both poets, and particularly Wordsworth as uh, political apostates. Wordsworth could confidently state to his friend William Matthews in a letter in 1794 that I am that odious class of men called Democrats. He- <laughs> He could write a letter, uh, not published, uh, to the Bishop of Landaff, justifying the execution of Louis XVI and stating that the office of king is a trial to which human virtue is not equal. But by 1803, uh, Wordsworth is defending king and country, and quite literally he becomes a member of the Grasmere Volunteers. By 1818, he's a government official, and is campaigning vigorously on behalf of the aristocracy in a local election. For Coleridge, too, we see a retreat from his early, earlier engaged radicalism, which uh, very much manifested itself in political journalism as well as poetry. Oh, it wasn't a microphone. It's clearly the force of romantic poetry. Is and the second generation romantics particularly were, were very severe on Wordsworth and Coleridge for this, uh, what they saw as political shape-shifting. However, um, the reasons for these shifting allegiances, uh, whilst not wholly admirable on either poet's part, are complex. And uh, it's hard to uh, overestimate the anguish caused by the failure of the French Revolution, which precipitated in Wordsworth something akin to a nervous breakdown. And I think it's also worth noting the, uh, the climate of fear, suspicion and repression in which both poets were operating in the 1790s. The government used the French Revolution and the outbreak of war in 1793 uh, as an excuse to clamp down on all forms of political dissent. Censorship was pervasive and writers and political activists were put on trial for their lives, uh, were transported and were exiled. Indeed, as late as 1797, Wordsworth and Coleridge were under surveillance from a government agent who suspected them of being spies for the French. This repressive climate didn't stop them producing uh, a volume like Lyrical Ballads, published in 1798, which drew attention to many of the evils inherent in society uh, at the time. But it did mean that, to pick up from Richard's introduction, they had to shift to a more oblique stance, perhaps, pursuing a revolution in poetry, rather than a revolution in politics. Thank you. Good, great. Um, can I can I repeat um, what's um, what each speaker has said? Thank you for, for turning up on an afternoon. Particularly, um, thank you for turning up uh, to listen to some Latin. Though I suspect that a lot of you haven't turned up to listen to some Latin. But thank you for not leaving at this moment. Please don't leave at this. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, what um, 
I mean, what I'm going to be showing uh, to you then, with a with an idea that that uh, I, you know, plenty of people won't have encountered uh, much Latin poetry before. But what I'll be trying to show to you is um, a, a tradition of poetry that, in many ways, well, is very different from what we were hearing about first from Carola. Um, there, I mean, I've picked up on on one uh, thing that she was told by. Uh, a poet who said a poet has to express what he experiences. That, I think most uh, people thinking about modern poetry, thinking about poetry in modern times, would regard as a pretty unquestionable uh, characteristic of, of poetry. I'd say that's also something that Roman poets would be a little bit sceptical uh, about, that there has to be such a direct relationship between one's personal responses and the poetry that one produces. So what I'm going to show you is just a few, very few examples of Roman poetry, which in, in certain ways will certainly at least appear the opposite of many characteristics that we associate with modern poetry. This is very <coughs> traditional poetry. This is very conservative poetry with a big, small and middle-sized C. Um, this is, uh, yes, highly artificial poetry. Now, I think that all of those strong, as it were, rules that come with the production of poetry in, in uh, Roman times and in classical times more generally actually set the scene for the possibility of very revolutionary, very radical poetry. It seems to me that it's only when you have rules that you can break rules, uh, and only when you have a very traditional kind of poetry that you can do the kinds of things that Roman poets do, which is, of course, not to deny how beautiful the poetry was that we were hearing from both sessions there. But to give the Romans some, some, some scope to uh, express themselves as well. OK, so what, we, what we've got here is a poem by um, Catullus. <coughs> and Catullus is a sort of a gateway poet uh, for people coming into Latin because Catullus seems to be a Roman poet who's as close to the modern ideal of expressing oneself in poetry, pouring one's feelings automatically into poetry. As you, can, uh, as you can come across in Latin poetry. And here is a, indeed a political uh, poem. He seems to be attacking a character called Marmura, who's um, a, an <coughs> acolyte of this character, Julius Caesar. And quite a lot of Catullus's poetry is, seems to be an attack on Julia, Julius Caesar. Um, and here is what Catullus says. Um, I'm going to read it in Latin because I can't help it. Mentula conator pupleum scandera montem musae furcillis praecipit weicunt. I enjoy it, I just can't do it. Tool attempts to scale the Pepleian mount. The muses hurl him out headfirst with pitchforks. The Pepleian mount is, is uh, the mountain of the muses, Helicon. So Tool, this man Mentula, which is a word for Mamura, I shall come back to later, um, is trying to write poetry. Um, but the muses kick him out with, um, or pitch him out with pitchforks. Now, this is a very blatant and, one would think, heartfelt <coughs> expression of Catullus's disdain for Mamura. One sign is that he calls him Mentula rather than Mamura, and Mentula is the most basic, rude word for the male genitalia that you can use. I, I've been fairly subtle translating <laughs> this way. Um, um, at the same time, of course, to get what the Pipleum Montem is, one has to be very aware of the traditions of poetic composition. We're not, it's not described as helicon, it's described as the, the mount of, of the spring of Pipla. 
Um, and indeed, to describe poetry in those terms is all to do with uh, tradition and education and, and uh, patterns of expression and so on. So, in fact, what we've got in this poem is, whilst at the same time, you know, at the same time as uh, an expression of extreme um, unhappiness with uh, Mamura, it's a poem that could only be written by somebody who's learnt his poetry from a tradition and is responding to that tradition. Just a couple of examples. The level of language that we're talking about here, the collision between the, the word mentula, and I'll leave you to think up equivalent English translations, <coughs> and the mountain of Pipleia or the hill of, of Pipla. The, the collision between Musai, the great goddesses of poetry on the one hand, and this very agricultural material that we have. There is it actually makes me weep, actually, that, I, that how beautiful the collision of Prykipitem and Aethiunt. It's so good that I couldn't actually speak it out um, before. It is what you describe as an architectural kind of piece of violence, uh, sorry, an agricultural piece of violence uh, to the architecture of the, of the line. Now, what you could also say that this first line is in a, uh, a very um, grand poetic form. It's in the dactylic hexameter. And the second line is in a less grand uh, uh, form, the dactylic pentameter. So Mentula goes up to the mountains in the, in, the, in the heroic form and he's kicked out in the less heroic form. All within two lines. And it's still expressing powerfully Catullus's disdain for, um, for Mamura. Now, moving on, um, I'm not going to read um, all of this, but here we have an example of something much less easy to deal with from our, from our position as, 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 as uh, readers of modern poetry. Because we have a poem by a character called Statius, which is um, straightforwardly in praise of this man, Domitian. Uh, Domitian being uh, an emperor who... By the time he becomes emperor, well, the gloves are off. Everybody knows what an emperor is. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a dictator who's got the armed forces behind him, basically. Um, and this poem, we're towards the end of it here, it goes on to about line 160, is a long description of a road <coughs> that the emperor Domitian has built and then called, rather um, imaginatively, the Domitian Way. And here is it, it still survives in his little... Uh, a bit of it down here, if you can see, you can see that. Now, here we have. I've, I, I've chosen a bit which is about as extreme an example of praise of an obnoxious ideology as as I could find in this poem. I did go to great efforts to find it. I'm going to read it and then explain to you what a wonderful poem this is. I don't mor- mean morally wonderful necessarily. Anyway, here we go. He's addressing Domitian, or rather, uh, the Sibyl of Cumai, who he's introduced to the. Uh, poem is uh, addressing the mission. Hail, leader of men and father of deities, Godhead foreseen and recognised by me. No longer scan my words ro- unrolled on rotting papyrus with the ritual prayer of the fifteen but as you deserve, listen to me prophesying in person. I've seen what a chain of forthcoming years the shining sisters are weaving for you the fates are weaving for you, how long you will live in other words. A great cycle of ages awaits you, outliving your children and your grandchildren you will enjoy in perpetual youth the peaceful years which Nestor is said to have reached, the years which Tithonus' old age counts up, and the number I demanded of Julian Apollo. So he's saying, you will live forever, sir. Um, you will live as long as a whole set 
of notoriously old people, including, um, <laughs> including the, the, the um, Sybil of Kumai um, herself, will live. Slavish. Um, you know, frightful. But re- a remarkable achievement at the same time. To give you just a couple of uh, examples. He writes a poem about a road which, to a remarkable degree, imitates the nature of a road in poetic form. Uh, one example of that is um, what we have down here, which is just the metrical form that it's written in. Long, long, dum-dum-dum, uh, dum 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 it's, it's actually a, a, a form of, of poetry, a for, uh, form of, a metrical form of poetry that's associated with Catullus, associated with the person we were hearing about before. And it sort of carries the character of Catullus, which was sort of felt to be a very youthful, vibrant, liberated kind of character. So what Statius is doing is describing a road in a metrical form and in a style, which we'd see if I'd uh, quoted other parts of the poem, which express liberty, freedom, all the benefits that this emperor is bringing, or Statius is claiming this emperor is bringing to the Roman people by giving them a quick road, taking them basically from Rome to the flesh pots of the Bay of Naples, essentially. Um, the fact that we've got the Sybil of Cuma at the end of it is part of this as well, because what the Sybil of Cuma was notorious for never giving it to you straight. So she'd give you prophes- prophecies, but they were sort of wrapped up and incredibly hard to interpret. Well, for Domitian, according to Statius, Sybil is, the Sybil is going to step out onto the road and tell him the stuff straight to his face. Even she is being affected by this atmosphere of freedom that comes with the road, that comes with Domitian's rule, that comes with um, Catullan verse form. So what are we looking at here? We're looking at a poem which can only be written against the background of intensively traditional forms of poetic expression, um, such as alert the reader to... Well, it's such as can assume that the reader knows uh, what Tithonus represents, knows the character of, of the Sybil of Cumae because they've read Book 6 of Virgil's Aeneid, for example, which is an important backdrop here. Um, and yet can create an exceptionally kind of meaningful artefact from it. And that's why I say I can kind of... I mean, Domitian has very, a very short time to live <laughs> at this point. This, this road and the po- road is, is built, the poem is written in 95 AD, AD 95. He gets assassinated by his, his uh, private minister um, shortly afterwards. He's a nasty piece of work. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Um, yet we can sort of separate the morality, or I can separate, I wouldn't uh, generalise, I can separate the, rea- the morality of this creation from the brilliance of the creation. The, the problem that the poet has been set, or has set uh, to himself, and he's resolved in, by these various means. Right, I need to move um, rapidly on. Um, half a poem here by Horace, whose writing his um, odes and his other poetry as well under uh, another emperor, under Augustus, at a time when the empire hasn't really um, admitted what it's about. The emperors are not really admitting that they are dictators at this point. Most people are probably fairly aware that they are, but it's not quite so explicit. 
And this strikes me as an example of, uh, well, another kind of poem, um, another, another example of a poem which has an argument that it's making and an argument which is and an argument and an argument which um, is um, you know from our point of view an obnoxious one potentially because he's supporting the ideology of the emperor and yet we can still see the artistry of the the, the artistry of the creation that's going into it and rescue that artistry I'll just read this um, um, rapidly and move on to the next slide which is the last slide but what I want to like to appreciate here is that the poet uh, for this length of time just appears to be talking about what his poetry is about and essentially saying that he is a lyric poet he's not a poet he's interested in the great grandeur of the world he's interested in much more private things others will praise bright roads or Mytilene or Ephesus or the walls of Corinth with its two, two seas or Thebes renowned for Bacchus or Delphi for Apollo, or Thessalian Tempe. There are those whose single task is to celebrate the city of Virgin Palace, in un- of Athens in other words, in un- uninterrupted song, and parade on their brows an olive wreath plucked from all sides in honour of Juno. Many a poet will sing of Argos, uh, good for horses, and wealthy Mycenae. As for me, I'm not so struck by enduring Sparta, nor the plain of rich Larissa, as the home of thundering Albunea and the plunging Anio and the grove of Tiburnus and the orchards watered by the ever-moving streams. So lots of amazing places in Greece that I could be writing about, but the place I really want to write about is Tibur, also known as, um, or now known as, as Tibur. So, an apparently sort of private poem, which in the second half, and this is the rest of the poem, suddenly develops a, a much more sort of public dimension. The bright south wind will often wipe the clouds from the dark sky. It does not always breed rain. So you too, Plancus, would be wise to remember to put an end to sadness and the troubles of life with mellow wine undiluted and so on. Now what suddenly sort of pitches this poem into somewhere into territory much more interesting and much more political is that name Plancus. Because what we're we're being introduced to there is a highly controversial figure in recent History. Somebody who actually represented recent Roman history in certain ways. Rome has just emerged from the civil wars at this point, and Plancus is a notoriously immoral character from those civil wars. Somebody who would change his um, allegiances um, regularly. Um, so here's an example of things that Plancus was, associated, was believed to have done. Plancus had enough influence to ensure that his brother Plancus Plotius was pres- prescribed. Okay, that's a brutal thing to do to your brother. That means he's, 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 he's going to be killed if he's uh, discovered, basically. Um, at his um, triumph, a triumph uh, uh, that, um, that Plancus enjoyed, his soldiers rather uh, drolly sang, um, the two consuls are not triumphing over the Gauls, but over the Germans. Germans also means brothers in, in Latin, Germanis. So he was notorious for them. Now what the rest of the poem introduces us to is a figure from mythology called Tusa who also had a bad reputation in respect of a brother, who had also been held responsible for the death of a brother. But listen to what we're encouraged to do, what Plancus is encouraged to do. He's encouraged to drink and forget it all, basically. Whether you're in camp amid gleaming standards or someday will enjoy the dense shade of your beloved Tivoli, Tibor. When Pitusa was fleeing Salamis and his father, they say that nonetheless, drenched with wine, he bound his brows with a poplar wreath, 
and spoke these words to his unhappy friends. Wherever fortune kinder than my father, he's been exiled by his father, um, carries us, there we shall go, my allies and companions. Do not despair while Tusa takes the auspices and Tusa leads the way. Uh, anybody who's had that shouted at them as they play football in driving rain, nil desperandum, uh, tick yourselves. Um, um, unerring Apollo has, has promised that there will be another Salamis in a new land. You're brave men and have often suffered worse than with me. Drive your anxieties away with wine. Tomorrow we shall set out again over the vast ocean. Tomorrow is another day, in other words. What he's saying here is a very lyric thing. He's saying the most important thing we can do is get drunk and obliterate our memories of the past. So in some senses he's saying, look at me, I'm writing lyric poetry. But he's also delivering a message that's acutely relevant to the interests of Augustus down the bottom there. Because if Plancus wants to forget the past, Augustus wants to forget the past as well. Augustus wants the civil war to be pushed into the background and to have a sort of a brand new dawn when we can move forward boldly into the future. Now, subtly done, it's insidiously done, you could say, but it's very, very artfully done in the process of delivering an extremely um, raw and urgent political message. Thanks very much. Right. Well, what, what we're going to do is just have a, um, a talk among, among uh, the panel now for five or ten minutes, and then we'll, we'll ask you all for some, for some questions. Um, and thank you so much for these three wonderful um, evocations of what poetry means at different ages. Um, I'm sorry, Richard. No, no, that's fine. That was my phone. <laughs> that dingle and the mid- sorry. Sorry, everybody. Sorry. It was very nice. Who was it? Was midday. Um, Hazlitt once said, "Poetry is the perfect coincidence of the image and the words." And it seems to me that looking at for one thing that was similar about the, the message that you were each talking about, but however much you know, Latin poetry is extremely different from the poetry, the beautiful poetry we started with with Carola. Um, this power of the image and the juxtaposed image images is perhaps central to poetry, or, or is it? That's my first question to, to you all. Um, I'm thinking, for example, in, in a Horace poem where, uh, another Horace poem where he um, wants to praise Augustus's moral reforms, and he does it by having this image of the wanton adulteress who takes a lover in front of her husband in Rome, and, and rather, rather, and it juxtaposes that very, very, very neatly with the image of the Sabine farmer coming back from the hillside to his, to his worthy mother. Yeah. I mean, is, is this how poetry works when it's political, through images, or, or can it be more direct and, uh, and panegyric? If, if we're talking about Roman, but if we're talking about Horace um, in particular, um, it's... I guess it is images. I mean, the way I think about it is the way that Horace engages with these these notions that Romans carry around in their heads. I mean, you, you've talked about two of them there. You've, you've you've introduced two of them there. This this paranoia that Roman readers have about the chastity of their women folk is is one thing that will really motivate them. And the other thing that will really motivate them is 
um, nostalgia for an entirely fictional countryside sort of purity, um, which is to do with a sort of an anxiety and a guilt about living in the biggest city mm. within, within um, sort of um, local knowledge, you know. So, yes, uh, good political poetry, Horace's political poetry is, of course, going to be um, dealing those images in, in sophisticated and, mm. and, and original ways. Um, but, I mean, I, I think it's appropriate that I've, we've ended up sort of effectively accusing Horace of um, cheap manipulation of his Roman readers as well as being, mm. you know, a terrifically kind of sophisticated mm. poet at the same time. Yeah. Do either of you want to pick this up? Yeah. I mean, I th- one of the interesting things, I think, about, about words was poetry, I mean... Uh, it's a feature of the prelude that it's uh, relatively difficult to quote uh, uh, one or two lines from the prelude. It's a bit of a poem of paragraphs and, and pages, in fact. Um, but what Wordsworth, I think, in both of those extracts, uh, he ends on a very, very powerful image. Uh, you know, the budding rose above the rose full blown. You know, defenseless as a wood where tigers roam. You, you get that kind of sense of, uh, in one hand, the sense of uh, potential, the other hand, the sense of, of, of threat. And I think. I think, in a way, um, Wordsworth, because of the nature of the poem, the prelude, it's very much a kind of it's it's him working through in his own mind and having almost a kind of internal discourse. Um, but he, in a way, he's seeking all the time for the for the image that's going to have the impact. I, I guess I was thinking about juxtaposition. Um, functioning in different ways and for mm. different reasons. But it struck me that what Wen was saying was that quite a lot that was political was not necessarily direct. Mm-hmm. So it had to be hidden in mm. a way. And I think that's the case in a lot of countries mm. where um, there is t- tyrannical mm. uh, government of whatever kind that... that um, uh, poetry that is expressing political dissidence in some mm. way has to be more cryptic perhaps mm. Mm. Um, and so obliqueness in, in that sense or using juxtaposition mm. as a suggestive thing in that mm. sense is different to um, the creativeness to, of it to, yeah. to using it uh, perhaps because it's the best way to mm. express something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, I think that, that's, that's a lovely point. Uh, and the, the, the last question I, re- I wanted to put to you before we open up is, is you see that the emotional response to poetic imagery is very often one of trying to engage the sympathetic imagination. Um, now, uh, an economist that um, I love called Adam Smith talked about sympathy as actually being a purely imaginative enterprise. You imagine yourselves in someone else's shoes, but then, crucially, you stand back and you judge um, uh, that position from your own position. So it's a kind of bifocal vision. And I wonder whether that isn't what a lot of good political poetry is. It enables us to inhabit another world through the image or whatever and then respond to it. You, you talked, Carola, about the quiet response of the reader, then respond to it emotionally or, or rationally. And I wondered too if it didn't link into Shelley, uh, Shelley's view in the defense of poetry about the moral purpose of poetry revolving around imagination and, and sympathy. He he wrote these little lines. A man to be greatly good must imagine intensely and comprehensively. 
He must place himself in a he must put himself in the place of another and of many others. The pains and pleasures of his species must become his own. The great instrument of moral good is the imagination, and poetry administers to the effect by acting on the cause. So my my question to you all is: Does poetry's awakening of sympathetic imagination give it an important moral role as well as political role potentially, as um, in uh, in our lives? Gosh, hasn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, which is what Shelley thought. No, sure. I mean, my 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 impulse is to wonder whether those are terms that the Roman poets and readers would not have understood. Would, would have grasped. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I'm thinking, I mean, it is a, a long-standing question for myself. Why do I enjoy that poem of? Statius so much, and what was it for at the time? What it was, what was it designed to do for Domitian? How were the readers meant to respond uh, in a way that would give them positive thoughts about Domitian? To to a large extent, what we're being encouraged to do there is be just simply impressed in a in a in a very um, well kind of totalitarian cultural culture kind of kind of way. Um, is one is one achieving imaginative sympathy with this mythological character of the of the Sibyl of Kumai as she's been? I think it's it's too artificial. It's too performative. It's too objective for that really to be a mm. a core kind of element of of, of Roman reading of this. Mm. What about Wordsworth, Mike? On well, I, I, I think I think for Wordsworth certainly he felt. Um, I mean, he, he would have endorsed the, you know, Shelley's view of the, the privacy of the imagination, I think, but also he, he very clearly, I think, in, in see, a, a volume like Lyrical Ballads is, is very much looking at the, the moral purpose of poetry. Mm. And, you know, uh, he goes at great pains to write uh, initially um, for the first edition of Lyrical Ballads uh, quite a short preface explaining what his purpose is in writing these poems. And then, when they're re-released in 1800, he writes uh, a very long preface mm. which expounds on this Idea. And part of that is seeing poetry having a moral purpose. And mm. um, that word even crops up an awful lot in, in, and is repeated a lot in Wordsworth's poetry mm. as well. Um, and I think Courage as well would have, would have seen that and, and, and seen that purpose. And part of their, part of their shift in lyrical ballads is, to, is, is, is coming out of that disillusionment with the French Revolution as a time that would change as it were, the morality, mm. uh, and, and trying to find another way yeah. of addressing that. And Carol, does this play any part, do you think, in modern, more uh, modern I, poetry? I, I had a, a, quite a strong reaction to um, the question. Yeah. I, um, I feel I can't talk for anybody else, but for myself, um, I think probably all people who are writing poetry have a moral stance or a, yeah. a, a, but I don't feel there's I feel strongly that somebody shouldn't be required to write to have a anything. conscious yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, at all the, the, you know that, that they should that, um, they will mm. Mm. and it does mm. but, but that the, the, the um, that being required to write something um, 
from because it's a moral thing to do, yeah. I, I, I found myself feeling uncomfortable. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Right, some questions. Um, a poem which is uh, political and which has resurfaced into the limelight recently is Tony Harrison's V. I'm not sure if it's a poem about whether the panel is familiar with it. Yeah. Um, it's a poem which I'm. Sorry, could everybody hear what I was talking about? Um, it's a poem which I'm just starting to become familiar with. Um, so I just. Hopefully not putting the panel on the spot. Just wanted to get a, some sort of comment from uh, each of the panel about that poem as to um, if they have any reaction to it. Can Do any I, of you know the poem? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no, I, I mean, I vividly remember... You know, I mean, I could sort of... When it, yeah, I mean, I could I mean, sort I'm, of sorry, don't to put it in context. No, 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 I mean, I, I, well, you may, you may need to, but, but what I vividly remember is when, you know, when The Independent was a, was a, a young... Newspaper and it, it and it printed the entire thing. Okay. Um, yeah. uh, so it must be roughly after it came out. I mean, what I what excites me about poetry like that, um, and 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 uh, Tony Harrison's other poems of Tony Harrison, is that it is public poetry. It's it's poetry mm. that is written to engage with a, a contemporary event. It has a personal uh, quality to it, of course. It is. Father's grave and the, and the rest of it, but it is unusual in many respects in contemporary terms because it is um, such a public event as a as a as a work of poetry. I mean, it was a it was all, at all stages a television program from the beginning. It was a, yeah. it was a film, wasn't it as well? And he's done that since. Um, that brings it rather closer to the kinds of things that I uh, work on in Latin. Poetry, which which is occasional poetry in the in the unusual sense of poetry written for an occasion, poetry written not not on demand, not required, mm-hmm. but with a view to something that needs to be explained or, just, or discussed or, or communicated. Isn't, um, just to explore that a little bit further, does Harrison's classical classics education is that running all the way through that poem? Is he you know, knowingly using, I don't know, the structures that we see in the sort of the ancient Roman poetry in that, in that poem. He's not, he's not using ancient um, metrical structures and they don't, they don't work with English, generally speaking, and that was sort of um, discovered at an early stage. But he's a, he's a formally, he's a very f- formally conservative poet, I think mm. you'd, you'd say. Um, I wouldn't say that V is a is is a, is a poem that betrays his classical education, but in, in general, he does. Perhaps sure. we better move on, not yeah, discuss sure. the poem that made some of us men. Um, here first, and then back. Can you have that mic? As a as a student of. Um, political philosophy here at SCI, I always uh, kind of felt that it was kind of the aspect of grip, uh, it was kind of discipline that bridged the, the, the gap between poetry and politics for me. And uh, in fact, in the defense of, of poetry by Shelley, played, it, it is Plato explicitly who's claimed to be the un- uh, one of the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Um, and I was just wondering, um, because through, through my uh, undergraduate degree, I, I found that uh, Particular philosophy was almost con- taken too seriously to an extent that it should have been 
um, treated the way poetry is treated, um, with kind of uh, more flexibility, if, if you will. And I was wondering whether you thought that, that, that uh, kind of the relationship between p- uh, political philosophy really and, and poetry and politics itself, and whether you thought that was something of interest. <laughs> um, yeah. Interesting comment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would like to ask the panel whether it makes life of the contemporary poet easier or more difficult that on the one hand one doesn't have to be oblique anymore because the tyrant could, could throw you into prison. I mean, it's almost as if one can't do the obnoxious anymore, like praising the present ruler, right, or the present political circumstances. One has to be, in a way, critical. Uh, So is that something that makes it easier or more difficult to let the integrity of the process, as as Carola nicely put it, uh, take over, rather than, I want to say something, you know, this and that. And I can basically say anything, we live in societies where you can more or less say anything. And the second question is the same with, with rhyme, you know, the, the, the formal constraint as we thought uh, poetry has on it. We, you don't have to rhyme in a, in a strict sense anymore for poetry. It's almost, as you said, Carola, in your, the example that you gave with Shambles, that the, the children's rhyme almost undermines and, and is critical of the content, namely that this is about slaughter and, and, and so on. So again, is the freedom of not to have the rules that you can break, um, that, you, that you then break, that you are f- in that sense a bit free of these rules, does that make your job more difficult or easier? That's a a great question, a good question. I'll tell you what immediately came to my mind. I think that in some ways um, people, well, certainly I do at times, find I need to give myself rules, if you like. So um, if, um, if, if there aren't... Um, you know, because we can say anything, um, uh, then um, I think people become can become interested in form and making form and 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 um, getting obsessed by uh, the, the 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 kind of structural rules we can set ourselves um, to contain a poem. Uh, I, I, I think that. Uh, so that's rules of structure. But in terms of rules of thought, um, I think having no um, boundaries makes probably it easier for a lot for myself to write a lot of rubbish. <laughs> um, and so. I, I guess that's why the internal logic or the internal requirements of a poem become so important because they create a, an organic structure, if you like, of both thought and 
um, and architecture in a way. I don't know if, if that makes sense, but I, I, I think you either have to give yourself them um, or you've got to discover them and stick to them in, in, the, in the process. Can I pick up Luen here? I mean, it's, it strikes me this is a bit like working from home as opposed to working in the office where you've, you've actually yes. got to invent your own boundaries. But did yeah. the Roman poets, was it much easier for them in a sense because they had so many rules that that gave them the space to break them? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I tend to think of this, excuse the um, analogy metaphor, but it's a bit like um, car building in California. You know, California is sort of leading... Um, Things in terms of, of, of uh, forward-looking um, uh, car technology, because the rules on cars in California are so restrictive. So you've got to be imaginative and creative in, in making your cars. One thing to say, I think, is that you can take away metrical form and the rules of metrical form. You can take away the rules of genre. What you can't take away is this stuff that you've got to manipulate called language, which has its own rules. So you're never getting away, I speak as a no poet, you know, but it seems to me you can get away from all of that, but there's still that very, very rigid material that as a poet you're proving your control of and your your ability to manipulate, which which is language. Now, I would sort of step back from that and say if we've got, if it's anyway a matter of creative manipulation, let's one, let's try introducing, reintroducing Catullan and syllables and uh, <laughs> and being uh, being gen- generically obsessed. Uh, it, the the short answer is no. I think you know if there's structure, there's always the scope to mm-hmm. manipulate structure and to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just think that, that that point about language is a really interesting one because um, you, you think about what um, Wordsworth and Coleridge were trying to do with lyrical ballads. It was very much uh, in the manifesto that Wordsworth puts out for. Poetry. Then it's about uh, writing in what he, he, he terms to be the language of common speech. So he's he's not using what he sees as high flown poetic language, which he feels is artificial and doesn't relate to the world as it is. Um, and I think just bringing back Tony Harrison and bringing back V. I mean, one of the the powerful elements of a poem like V was his use of the expletive, you know, and that's what the Daily Mail got very hot under the collar about, yes. and what Channel Four kind of embraced, you know. But uh, part, of the, part of the energy of that poem is in the violence of the language, which is mirroring the violence of, you know, of, of what's going on around the minor strike and everything at that time. And I think, I think that, that kind of sense of you know, mm. the challenge that languages can, can bring and the energy that you can get from that challenge is really important. Can, can I pick something up on that? Because I think um, it strikes me that there's different ways of being radical, and one of them is about how you work with language. Mm-hmm. So you might have um, poets who are doing radical things with language without doing radical things with the content, if you see what I mean, mm-hmm. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, if we just look at Pound and Eliot, for example, they, they, they were, you know, famously uh, uh, not left-wingers. <laughs> but what they were doing, uh, you know, in terms of poetry and the, and, and and language, um, uh, you know, was was very radical and 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 energising 
to 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 the language and and you know and our most sort of experimental poets now doing really interesting hardly understandable things sometimes with language um, but it doesn't necessarily mm. tell us anything and I suppose that um, slightly picks up on your your point about when uh, when when the uh, words within Coleridge um, fell out of love with the French Revolution as a revolution, they turned to a poetic revolution yeah. instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. One last question, I think, we've got to have Oh, it's going to be difficult to choose here, but you, I think you were just first. <laughs> just I wondered whether it was worth talking a bit more about uh, the connection between uh, the politics of a poem and, and its uh, audience, mm-hmm. and whether... Um, um, you know, poetry is all semi-commissioned by different political um, sections of our society or in history. In fact, I mean, I think in you know, Roman times, a lot of poetry was written directly for the emperors um, and so will ne- naturally have served their uh, politics. And, and so, I, you know, I don't go around looking for um, poems in right-wing newspapers or left-wing newspapers or right-wing magazines left, but I imagine that that sort of thing does happen, that poems are selected for their politics and consumed by sections of uh, the political spectrum. Is, is, is that something that you uh, perceive yourselves? Well, the Romans didn't have um, the spectator and the New Statesman, so it's quite hard to say, but um, I mean, I think one thing to say about the, the Romans is that it wasn't it wasn't commissioned, but it was it was it was done in a way that would have, would appeal. I mean, Roman poets writing poems were, were sort of giving gifts to patrons, kind of thing. So they weren't actually told what to do. Quite the contrary, but they were still doing what their patrons would 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 want. Um, that sort of maintains the sort of creative integrity of the poet somehow, which is kind of interesting. But that, that's that's a sideline. I think. I think context is really important. Like, you know, if, if you had a... I was sort of thinking about um, John Cooper Clark or something in, a, in a, uh, a, a noisy performance, for example. Um, that would have a very different function to perhaps reading, reading a poem on, on the page. Um, but also... Uh, yeah, I think how what is the intention of a poem is very different to its function. And I think its function is very much about who might read it or hear it, what place, what time in history, um, and, and, and really what the exact circumstances, particularly <coughs> when, um, you know, like... Um, there's a, a, a Chinese poet called Zhu uh, Yufu, I think, who's just been um, imprisoned for seven years in, um, in China for writing a very short poem about calling people to come into the square. <laughs> um, and, you know, that poem read by one person or ten people in this country would be very different experience. Well, I'm sadly we're going to have to stop there, but I would like to ask you please to thank Llewellyn, Michael and Carol.